Hey, I'm Brian Levin. Welcome to the Progression Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. This is Johnny, CEO and founder of Progression. Today, I'm chatting to Brian Lovin. We actually chatted a couple of months ago while he was halfway through releasing Staff.Design, which is his series of blog posts uh, and interviews about the role of a staff designer or a very senior individual contributor within design. Uh, So we chat about that and the importance of titles and when you're senior, what it really means to be senior and what you should be caring about and, and actually end up uh, talking for a while about the importance of being an owner, acting like an owner. So it's really interesting to see that since this recording, he has actually published a separate blog post about his thoughts around staff design, how meaningful the project was and whether he would do it again, which I'll link to in the show notes. But for now, enjoy the chat. So, Brian, first of all, I'll, I'll do a bit of an introduction. I'm sure a lot of people have already bumped into you in various guises, but you are a designer. You're kind of prolific on the internet, I think it's probably fair to say. Designers who are learning the craft will probably have bumped into, who are, definitely who are listening to podcasts will have bumped into Design Details, which is the podcast that you co-host. You've recently started rolling out Staff.Design, which is your interviews with senior IC designers, and we're going to get very much into that. Yeah. Um, But also things like Spectrum. And you've got kind of a thousand projects that you've worked on. So first of all, I'd love, that's probably a bad uh, introduction. I would love to kind of hear from you, if you could sum up what you are, the shape of Brian Lovin, just for everyone. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I just like to build stuff on the internet and it just ends up being a lot of software for developers, tools for developers and designers. I'm interested in communities, which was Spectrum. And I guess staff design is more of like a meta side project. It's like, I am a designer and I want to like have a side project to learn about how other designers have approached certain problems in their careers. I guess I would just describe myself as a designer who likes to build stuff. And then, and then I just happen to like talk about it and record it and broadcast it in certain moments. And yeah, that's how we're here, I think. Awesome. Yes, absolutely. We can, we can dig into a little bit of the history behind why we're talking in a second. But first yeah. of all, I'd love to just, you've podcasted more than I have for sure. This is, I think, my 24th podcast recording. Oh, and nice. 24th progression podcast recording and you've you've done a lot more of this i'd love to hear just a little bit about design details the history of how it came to be and also what it's brought to the other parts of what you do in terms of you know being comfortable talking about the work you're doing and and things like that yeah i mean we've recorded like 384 i think and so at a certain point you get more comfortable the horrible sound of your own voice. <laughs> I don't know if you've breached <laughs> that gap yet, but like, oh my, oh my God. Yeah. yeah, listening to your own voice is painful. Um, so the background of the podcast, it started in 2014. I was writing these little blog posts where I would record videos of apps that had cool interactions or interesting animations or visuals or, or whatever it was. And I would just add little pieces of my commentary to it. And looking back and reading those commentary, oh my God, I, like I had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, 
it's embarrassing. Anyways, I've left it all up. <laughs> uh, so I was recording these blog posts and, and these videos and people liked them. This was around the time that Facebook paper came out. I don't know if you remember Facebook paper, I do, indeed. but that was yeah. like an interaction design goldmine, right? Everything you touched was like, uh, manipulative, manipulatable. <laughs> I don't know the right yeah. word. Like you could just interact with everything. It felt so fluid. You could drag things, reorder things, swipe things away. Like web previews were little cards that you like sort of hinged open. It was gorgeous. And so I recorded all these videos of Facebook papers, interaction design, and that post just went crazy. I don't know. Those posts got like millions of views, <laughs> which is nuts. Um, and probably still do. I don't know if you're tracking analytics on... I don't know, actually. They're hosted on Vimeo, so there's analytics in there somewhere. Right. Anyway, so I'm recording all these videos of other people's work, and what I found out was other people were using those videos for reference. And so one person, Bryn Jackson, reached out, and he was like, why don't you just ask the people who designed these things why they designed them this way? And he had come from an audio background. He had experience in audio engineering. And so he, he brought all of the technical skills of recording a podcast. And I just brought the blog posts, which had built up a little bit of an audience and an email list. And so that was why we started the podcast. And then like tactically how we started it was we just wrote down a big list of all the designers working on interesting things at that point in time, anyone we could think of. And we just started sending cold emails, Twitter DMs, tweeting at people, all this kind of stuff. And got a list of people who were like, yeah, of course, I'll come on your podcast. Because it turns out most designers in this industry are pretty generous with their time. And so we recorded five episodes before we started releasing things. Just to get a feel for it, we recorded our first episode twice because our first recording was so bad. And then, yeah, we just started releasing them. And that was, I guess, six years ago. So, When people are thinking about their personal brand on the internet or, or how they represent themselves or how they get a following of, of their own. What are the tips that you might give them or, or what are the, the kind of things that you've seen compounding in order to get to a point where it's a kind of meaningful? I have kind of a, a rant. It's, it's like a work in progress rant in my head. In fact, it's a blog post that I've been drafting. So when you sent over this that you wanted to talk about this, I was like, perfect, because I have this outline <laughs> of a blog post that is rough but it kind of goes something like this. I'll just hit the high points. I think it's really important to ask yourself why you would want an audience in the first place. I mean, obviously there's like small internet famous and then there's like famous people and like having 20,000 followers. I don't know if that makes you, I don't know where that falls on that scale, but in the design world, I guess that's a lot of people. And so you have to ask yourself, like, do you want that many people looking at you and reading everything you write? and evaluating you <laughs> and like it applies a different kind of pressure to the things that you say online. Mm. There's pros and cons, which I'll outline in a minute, but I think it's important to start with like, why would you want an audience? And there's some good reasons to want one. I think, you know, having access to people to ask, to, to talk to. One of the cool things that I'm able to do is ask questions on Twitter and people reply. Like, that's awesome. Strangers on the internet will reply to my questions. I think on the con side, I think one thing I've realized recently is it's really easy to, you, you get a false sense of confidence or a lot of false signs of encouragement by having an audience mm -hmm. on Twitter. 
because likes are shallow. Likes don't mean much. And a great way to demonstrate this is if you scroll through my timeline, some of my tweets in the past week that I thought were sharing my more important work, like sharing some of the more recent interviews on staff.design, get a handful of likes. Mm. Like people will click on it and go read the interview. And then I have tweets where I literally tweeted a screenshot of the Framer marketing page and that got like a thousand likes. <laughs> it's like, okay, like that's cool, but it literally means nothing, right? It adds nothing to my life. It's very shallow. It's exciting the first few times you get like hundreds of likes. Mm. But then you start to realize like, oh, I can just like tweet screenshots of pretty pictures and get likes. So what's the point? So I think if you're going to have an audience, one, you got to like make sure you want it. Two, you got to be intentional about what you want out of that. Like what are you trying to accomplish by having followers on Twitter or having a big email list? You know, for some people, they just like that. Like they just like having a big number. I think other people might be a little bit more intentional. Like they want to sell something. They want to maybe become an independent product designer at some point in the future. And they could sell a course on the side and have this like group of people who have kind of come along for the ride and might be willing to, to buy whatever, a course or a tutorial or something like that. So there's a lot of, I think, introspection that should happen leading up until like deciding that you want to have an audience. For me, it was pretty much accidental, but like in retrospect, I think it really boils down to doing things online and then talking about it. I think this is where I see a lot of designers sort of hit a wall where they're very capable. They love doing things and building things, but they hate talking about it or they're not good at talking about it. They don't like to brag or talk about themselves. And so one of my tips for people who get stuck there is one to make it about the work. Like you're not really bragging about yourself. If you're just doing interesting things, just like talk about the interesting thing. And then the second is to just establish a rhythm, like put yourself into a position where there's a habit or a cadence that gets built up over time where you don't have to like trick yourself every time to like hit the publish button, right? Just something that you do. That's great. It's actually a, an interesting or a useful segue into how we first met or started messaging because mm. around this time last year, I was noodling around on an MVP for Brag Docs. Yeah, yeah. My co-founder and I were, were really enamored with the idea of being able to build a personal proof of work and how to capture and verify, I suppose, the work that you've done and, and tell a story rather than just have your title and the company logo on your CV mm-hmm. and trying to work out if there was a behavior that we could kind of lean on or whether it was something that was nascent or whether it was something that was didn't exist at all. And I, I think we're probably still not at the point where we've proven that that actually exists uh, widely. But I bumped into your, or you commented on, on someone else's timeline on their website. And we, we kind of got chatting, you ended up signing up as one of the first customers, yeah. one of the first users of BragDocs. We then sat on it for a year. And we basically didn't deploy a single line of code up until last week when I managed to get the app running again. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, update all of your dependencies. Yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. I know that dance. I wanted to throw my computer out of the window multiple times. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Yeah. Docker, yeah. how does it work? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, since then, you've really kind of built out your personal site and you have kind of lots of different I suppose, aspects to your work. And you've actually talked quite a lot about how you've built your website and the, the code is open source. 
but I'm interested in your thoughts around brag documents or brag sheets or, or whatever you want to, to call that kind of that Google Doc or, or Notion document or whatever it is you kind of keep your work in and whether you've seen yeah. other aspects of that and whether as as someone who publicly records their work, I suppose, um, whether that's been a, a useful reflection and, and resource for you. Yeah, well, I don't I don't publicly record all my work, certainly not my day job stuff. I guess from my end, it seems like if you're going to have a brag doc or or something about documenting in public, it really comes back to this, like, what's your goal? What's the purpose? And I think the brag doc format specifically feels a little bit more about how do I communicate upwards to a manager or director that I'm doing all these things and I deserve a promotion or I deserve a raise that proof of work idea. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. look at all this stuff that you might not encounter day to day, but it's sort of the invisible work that I'm, I'm doing in the background. And, and for that, it's perfect. I, I do that as well. I use things and anytime I do something at work, like, Oh, I interviewed a new design candidate or I shipped this feature goes in the doc as, or in my to do's. And then when it comes to review season, when I'm writing my self review, I literally just go through that list of to do's turn it into some sort of like cohesive outline, group things together correctly, trim out all the, the things that don't really feel super important. Uh, and then as I'm doing that, I just check them off in my to-do list. Right. Now on the, the public, like working in public side, I think it's awesome. I think more people should be just like building things and then talking about how they built things. I saw this really good tweet from Zuby. I don't know who this is. Zuby Music. <laughs> Maybe I should. They seem famous on the internet. They said the best way to build a genuine following is to tell the truth. Mm. And I think you will notice that people who are really good about talking about their work online are people who tell the truth about how hard it is or they'll tell the truth about how successful it was. Like you'll see this trend right now, certainly with like the indie hacker movement. It is very accepted and encouraged to talk about how much money you make by selling a product or or working on a side project or talking about how many visitors you get and like what the conversion rate was and how you learned about how to market it better. All these kinds of things, like telling the truth of your experience building something. Maybe Zuby's talking about a different kind of truth. Maybe I'm talking about transparency, but there's uh, a little bit of an overlap there. So yeah, I think people who build stuff and just like talk candidly and honestly about it, people are attracted to that. And that opens up doors for collaboration. It opens up doors for, I don't know, people like you reaching out and saying like, come on the podcast, (laughs) right? Like, I think there are a lot of upsides to just doing that work in public. Yeah, you kind of open up a level of psychological safety or something. You become more approachable. Which can be a bad thing, by the way. This, <laughs> this will I'll have all this fully fleshed out in the blog post. Like once you become accessible, you become accessible. Like you will get messages from people, and I think I certainly speak from like the more privileged end of the receiving end of lots of public commentary from strangers on the internet. I think it's much worse for people who don't look like me. Mm. But you know, you will get lots of DMs, and some of the DMs are kind, some of them are not. Some of them you will want to reply to and then you forget and then you feel really bad. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. There's all these like side effects of having that approachability. But I th- it, from my point of view, the pros outweigh the cons. Um, it's interesting. I saw, I don't know if you've come across this chat with a guy called Justin Jackson who's building Transistor yeah. FM. 
and he talked about the extra burden of having a following and feeling like you need to kind of I think maybe probably perform is the wrong word but you need to to kind of support your community and then do right by them and give back and, and things like that it's not a situation that I find myself in so it's difficult for me to comment personally but yeah I, I think as soon as you have to use the word perform you've like already lost mm. right I think we've gotten really really good at telling who's authentic on the internet and I think people are getting really good about faking it but I think we're still better at detecting the people who are a little more like growth hackery or like growth <laughs> marketing -y and you can kind of tell like they're just doing everything because there's some upside for them mm. versus people who are authentically just excited about shit. This episode of the Progression Podcast is brought to you by Progression User Research. Here at Progression, we're on a mission to build software that helps people to grow and that they love to use. To do that, we need to talk with team members, with managers, with HR folks to really understand what they want to do and how they want to do it. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to progressionapp.com research and in return for your time, you'll receive a first edition Progression t-shirt. Back to the show. Like you can tell when somebody is having fun on the internet. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. It's very subtle. Maybe it's just this evaluation of a sequence of tweets over many months. You sort of start to like fill in this little shape of that person's persona or, the, or their relationship with their work. And sometimes it's real and sometimes you can tell it's a little bit forced. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you get into this world of one, having a self-imposed pressure to perform and then two, being like, you got to drag yourself out of bed to go tweet something because your audience expects it. You've lost. Like, fuck that. That does not sound okay. like a fun way to live life. So if you're not having fun actually doing the work, then it's not <laughs> worth trying to build an audience around it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and being genuinely you, being able to bring your whole self to your, your Twitter profile or something. Well, I don't, it doesn't even have to be your whole self. Like it can be purely about the work. Right. But if you're not having fun with the work, yeah. then what's the point? Right. And I think, you know, this is the problem that I think a lot of specialists run into is they'll become very famous for one thing and they'll feel an intense like resistance to switching their interests. Mm. They'll say, oh, I became famous because I made some open source library right. or I became famous because I was de a designer at some company. And then they become interested in other things <laughs> and they want to move on and become maybe more associated with some other topic or industry mm. and that transition is hard too that's like an identity crisis right yeah but i think for me it, as long as you're just having fun and enjoying the process who gives a shit like i don't know I, I try not to overthink this like how do i get more twitter followers every month because if i did care about that there's things that i would do differently like if you actually want to get more twitter followers you can just tweet different things right yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, in no way did I want to insinuate that you were kind of cynically using uh, oh, Twitter. No, you're, <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> okay. It's funny, like this whole conversation, I just like, I'm, I'm bouncing over to my notes and I have this, this note. I'm like, you must enjoy this. Like, if you don't enjoy this, yeah. you've failed. Like, you are living this fake life where you have to pretend that you give about a uh, shit about something that you don't care about, you know?
yeah why why are you even doing it at that point yeah what's the fun in that yeah right absolutely i'd love to switch to about your latest project which must have come from a place of love by extension of the conversation we just had but also is really interesting to me and uh, me as someone who's building a tool in this space i suppose and and thinking about this as well yeah but uh, staff design tell us about that where it came from and the kind of thesis behind it i suppose Staff design is a project to scratch my own itch, not much more than that. So I've been thinking about the IC career path for product designers for years. Really, since when I joined Facebook, I was very early on and I had, I just remember having conversations with my manager every week, every other week, just like, what's the path here? Like what, okay, I can see like a promotion in the future, but then what's beyond that? How do you like, can I keep doing this forever? Or do I need to switch to a management role? And I, over the years, saw a lot of my friends move into management and a lot of my friends start getting paid a ton of money. And a lot of my friends have a lot more influence and scope and authority within their organizations. And so I've always felt this tension between just wanting to design things and make things and feeling like the real career growth is on the manager track and a lot of companies will talk about like a two-track system where those you can actually split and those will be in lockstep but i i struggle to see that actually working in reality i think maybe someone out there has figured it out or it works a little bit but not completely but i think ic's just hit this wall where it's not really clear how to keep growing because what seems to be required for growth is to do less designing, which mm-hmm. is the thing they actually like doing. Like in order to grow, you got to start mentoring, hiring, coaching, like writing documents, influencing the organization, doing all this kind of stuff. And none of that is designing to solve user problems. So some people will just find a level like a senior or a staff level and just kind of park just like, this is good. I'll just hang out here forever. And then other people who are more ambitious and just want to like, they're constantly looking for that growth they get really frustrated because then they they go down that path of either doing non-design stuff or they just feel forced into management and those people might not be good at being managers so i've been thinking about all this for years and i had a very great conversation with a manager at github that helped me to stop thinking about it which was basically like look you can just do it it doesn't like we just don't care just whatever work you want to do, like we're going to make it possible. Mm. And having someone sort of open that door for you, unlock it, it was really freeing. I just felt this weight lifted. It's, it's hard to describe exactly how that conversation went, but I, I basically felt this pressure removed to choose between management or just being an individual contributor. And so I thought, how lucky am I? Like how lucky am I to have people to talk to like this? And we've interviewed people on design details who have also gone down that path. And I was like, all right, I want to just talk. I'm going to do another round of interviews. I'm going to be the interview guy, but I just want to talk about this one specific problem about how to navigate the individual career contributor career ladder or career path, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And so that was it. So I picked eight people who I wanted to talk to people who I felt like could bring different points of view to the topic, sat down, interviewed them transcribed them and now we're releasing them week by week and i think we're like halfway through 
and I'll put this in the show notes as well, but staff.design is where you can go to find that stuff. So first of all, on a high level, I mean, I, maybe it's not possible to sum this up, but your thoughts around how a senior IC might work in based on your conversation about yourself at GitHub, I mean, has that been confirmed? Have you found out anything, any interesting trends from those conversations that you've had with other senior ICs? And, and th- these are people that are working at the companies that we have all heard of and use, you know, Instagram and lots of people that are creating things that are incredibly um, impactful, I suppose, in the interfaces that we use. Yeah. I think there's like the correct answer which is like yeah like as you become more senior you should be increasing the the scope of the projects that you work on probably working not only across projects and teams but also across organizations thinking a little bit higher level about the organization as a whole Uh, you're probably leveling up in terms of complexity people feel comfortable giving you projects where there's no clear answer in sight it's much more of just like here is a hard problem around human behavior or a hard problem with the way people use our product or platform, go figure out a solution and nobody knows what solution looks like or nobody even knows what the shape of the solution is. So I think that's a very like tangible thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you working on harder problems? Are you working on problems that influence more of the organization or the business? I think then there's the more like interpersonal side. Like, are you having a little more influence within like the design org itself? Are you mentoring? Are you participating in hiring? Are you playing an active role in shaping that team's culture? Whether that's just by the way that you talk about work, the way that you encourage others, the way that you give feedback or participate in design critique. I think all of that just increases as as you become more senior. So I said, I think that's like the real answer, but I think there's this like other meta answer, which really, I don't know, I've interviewed eight people and like these eight interviews are all just bubbling in my (laughs) head. And so it's hard to draw the lines of like where I've learned this from talking to people versus my own experience. But at some point, Wilson Miner said, you know, at some point you just realize that all these career ladders and these documents, they're just arbitrary. They're just frameworks to nudge you to a certain point Mm. where they no longer matter. Mm. And I think you'll notice this with a lot of people who are super senior, like they just get to this point where they don't give a shit anymore. Like this meta game of like, how do I get the next promotion? It doesn't matter anymore. And that sounds exciting. That sounds really exhilarating. Maybe I'll get there. Uh, But I think really at that point, it's about just the person wanting to build the best product possible, build the best business possible. Are you familiar with like the principal agent problem? No, no. So the principal agent problem, I don't want to butcher it too bad, but principals are like owners, right? So managers and and business owners and agents are employees, uh, individual contributors. And the principal agent problem is that the incentives for those two groups of people are usually misaligned. So the owners want to maximize, you know, revenue and throughput and, get people to do more work, do better work, figure out, solve problems in more efficient ways, that kind of thing. And agents, employees, typically are acting in their own self-interest. They want to make the most money. They want to have the highest title. They want to have the most power or influence. Mm -hmm. And so the principal agent problem is 
how do you align those incentives or how do you like break out of this tension where those things might be pulling people apart? And so I think what it comes down to is the agent changing their frame of mind and the agent in this case, so employees actually just acting out of interest of the business, like showing up to work and saying, I don't give a shit about my personal goals. I'm here to build the best business possible, Mm -hmm. or I'm here to do the best design work possible and kind of forgetting the meta game of career growth and like strategizing and like worrying about Mm -hmm. this management. I see distinction, like even caring about this like two track problem. Eventually, I think you just stop caring about that and you just care about doing the best work possible. And it seems to me, from my point of view, that the people who do that tend to have the most success. Those people are a little more entrepreneurial. They might have been founders in the past because they just understand that there's problems to be solved. You're the best person to do it. Who cares about your title? Just go solve the problem. Mm. Did that answer your question? It, it, did answer <laughs> my, it did answer my question. I felt like as you were talking... And definitely your initial reaction to me asking the question, I sensed a certain amount of, there's no answer. There's no real, this is an unsolved problem. And uh, maybe I'm wrong, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's unsolved. I think uh, your, your questioning of, the, I suppose, organization's ability to really meaningfully create a two-track or a team's ability to create a two-track system and have it really be in lockstep sounds like it you know there's people who really want to be a senior ic are fighting against something to an extent or is that incorrect i'm not sure i think one thing that's come to mind is are we even asking the right question like we have Mm. this ic manager two track system and we're like they should be even like you should be able to be an ic at the equivalent level scope authority power whatever compensation as a director like a a big manager over here and that's kind of what everyone's been talking about like how do how do you get Mm. ic's to that level and i guess through these conversations i'm wondering if that's even the right question like is it even possible like should we just accept Mm. that look if you want to be a manager you're probably gonna make more money you're gonna have like it's a hard job it's hard to manage lots of people it's hard to manage teams of people maybe Mm. it's okay like if you choose that path you're going to get paid more. It's harder. There's bigger stakes. There's more interpersonal problems. Like you have to collaborate a lot more, right? It's just maybe that's the way it works. I don't know. That might be a little mm. defeatist. I'm still interested in seeing if we can get <laughs> like those super high level ICs to, to exist at that level. Oh, another thing that happened, which I think is maybe happening here. When I published the project, a few weeks into it, I was talking with one of the design leaders at GitHub and he said something very important to me. It was very candid and blunt and I like reeled, I reeled back and I had to go take a Mm -hmm. walk after I read it. And what he said was, I think you're on the verge of taking design too seriously. Mm -hmm. And I was like, shit, I, maybe I am where I'm spending a lot of time and energy thinking about this sort of meta game of career growth and the two track system and figuring out how other people have navigated to become like the most influential, highest paid designer, all this kind of stuff. Like maybe I'm taking this too seriously. Like maybe what it really is, is just showing up to work, solving the hardest problems in the best way you can. 
and doing that for years and years and years. And eventually you've just done it so many times that you happen to be really good at it. You know, (laughs) I, I have gotten some interesting feedback like that, that really made me reconsider my relationship with this problem. Like, do I care? about titles mm. i don't know like i see that there's pros and cons to them i don't know <laughs> it's it kind of goes back to what you were talking about with if you're not doing the thing that you love then what's the point anyway mm. and it's interesting you you mentioning that maybe being a director is worthy of a higher salary or worthy of a higher level uh, within the organization and that's okay but you can still choose to not take that because you would rather do the design work and maybe that's the end of the story and we don't need to kind of think about it anymore. And as long as you're doing what you love, then that's going to be the thing you're best at anyway. Yeah. And I heard you mention before, you know, someone who wants to be an IC, will they be a good manager anyway? Is it really wise for an organisation to kind of push people into management who don't want to be? I think that that's actually where the tension comes from mm-hmm. is you have fantastic senior and loyal people who want to keep doing the craft you want to reward them you want to keep them but your organizational structure doesn't allow you to necessarily keep them in that world or there's no language around it or it's unclear what they would do and where they're going so they end up in management because that's the way that the organization understands how to compensate them for their work and yet they end up doing a completely different job exactly but like if if you really pay attention to that it's just pointing out exactly how this is all made up like it's all made up that somebody gets this level we're like well we don't know what to do this with this person because our document that someone made in a spreadsheet five years ago doesn't tell us what to do next so manager question mark it's like i don't know it's just a made up problem it doesn't mean it's not a real problem it just means that we've imposed this problem on ourselves not because it's inherent like Sure, there should be a way for people to just keep doing good work, work on harder problems, get paid a lot of money, and be very happy. But yeah, organizational design doesn't seem to make that flow of growth upwards super smooth. Mm. The, the titles is kind of a different, or, yeah. or a, a related, but it was interesting at Deliveroo, there was, Brian, for your benefit, I, I was at Deliveroo before starting Progression, and I remember a conversation about titles and titles being specifically important for people of color underrepresented people to be able to kind of carry the weight that they deserved in a room full of white men for example and once i'm given that principal title that means something uh, in the company that means that i will get listened to more for example and it's sad that that has to be the case but well there is i mean I don't think every woman or person of color necessarily agrees with that. And my data for mm. this is just the conversations that I've had. We talk about this in some of the staff design conversations, but also just talking to other people. I think what you've said is true generally, but not everybody wants the title as this like proof that you're competent. They would rather let the work mm. itself be the proof that they are competent and able to solve problems. I think I was talking to Vivian, who is the second interview, and she didn't like this idea that a title would change your perception of somebody, or you walk into a room and you know their title and you sort of size them up and apply everything Mm. that they're saying through the filter of, oh, well, they're this title, so that opinion must be good. Like you can Mm. really 
clearly see all the problems with that line of thinking where a title is some proxy for or or or, or doesn't is misused as a proxy for credibility and trust like certainly it can act in that way and i think that's the intent but yeah i mean that sucks to get in a room with people who anytime anyone says anything they're like hmm well what's this person's level should i believe it versus just listening to what they're saying and collaborating based on what everyone's contributing i think that's a more desirable world but maybe an optimistic one that we, we just need to work towards yeah it's an unfortunate i mean it's hard not to kind of go back to i suppose industrial revolution to you know command and control management structures and look at the history of everything that has been built over decades and centuries and and question where that came from and why we're still holding on to a lot of that stuff but uh, at the same time change takes time i suppose yeah yeah Um, it takes time and also i mean there's a whole other problem with the titles about just transferability right like what does principle mean at one company versus another like we have creative directors who are 22 year olds at a startup that made it's like okay well the title what does that really mean in relation to the creative director of instagram right like uh, these right. seem like different levels but we've applied the same title just haphazardly and we do the same with all titles i think the transferability mm-hmm. between organizations is really hard and i think that transferability problem is a good way that companies recruit designers right Because the title, they don't really give a shit, I don't think. Like, okay, this person wants to have the word staff in front of their title in order to join our company? Sure. Who cares? Okay, they get like $20,000 more a year. Fine. Whatever. (laughs) Like, that just doesn't cost the company that much to just put that word Mm. in front of their their name. So. Mm. Okay. I'd love to get back to some of the things that uh, I read as I was reading through stuff design uh, around it felt like themes that were happening around I suppose measurability of a senior IC and I know that you know we've just kind of gone quite deep on the value of measuring it and how much we should worry about people becoming super senior as ICs but for example in Jessica's interview she talked a lot about how she would measure her own work in terms of impact on the business and impact on the way others work and things like that. I'm just wondering, are there some things that you would see as muscles that people should be building in order to be able to stay doing the work and become more senior on that side? Yeah, I, I think it's important. The Maybe the muscles is like a good, good way to like frame this because there's lots of different kinds of muscles that are good at doing different kinds of things right like you can imagine someone being a very senior IC craftsperson like they just design really good looking fun to use playful delightful whatever adjectives you want to use interfaces right it's just awesome work (laughs) but maybe they suck at like defining problems right so maybe you Mm -hmm. want to pair them up with a really good senior IC who is like in the weeds on data and customer research, customer development, business development. And they really are people who are great at identifying or discovering problems in some data set. And maybe you have something that's like in between that, right? Like really great prototypers, really great product thinkers. 
I don't know. And like those people all have different skills. They don't need to do all of those things all at once, but certainly you want all of those people in your organization and you want them all talking every day. Right. Mm-hmm. So what muscles should people be flexing? I don't know, but like maybe one of those, right? Like, or do you really like the craft? Do you like product development? Do you like research? Do you like getting into the weeds on data? Maybe mm-hmm. those are things that become your edge. Like they help you stand out and the like, I don't know, your T shape, right? Like that's the thing that you go deep on, on the T. One more thing. We should have a link to this in the, the show notes. I'll send you a link. This principal agent problem is real. Like this is something that mm-hmm. I think if people want to level up very, very quickly, they should internalize and understand their relationship with the principal agent problem. As soon as you stop thinking about yourself and just think 100% of the time about how do I solve problems for the customers of my business, I think that's a superpower. I think people will notice it. You just have impact by default. You don't have to fake anything. You're just pointing like, oh, I noticed this problem existed, so I solved this problem. And then this other problem came up, and so then I went and solved that. Like, It is such a clear story of why you are great and why you deserve promotions and raises and all the glory. But I think a lot of people get hung up on what should I do that will look best? What Mm. should I do that will be most impressive to others? What should I do that will look best on my portfolio? What should I do that will let me create the prettiest interface? Right. Mm. And once you get stuck in that layer, Again, you're not acting in the interest of the business or even in the interest of your customer. You're acting in the interest of your own career development, which I think is fine for some people at a certain level. But I think if you want to escape that, <laughs> you have to change mm-hmm. your frame of mind. And just be like, nope, I'm showing up every day to give. I'm selling eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours of my time to solve problems for this business, uh, and I'm going to do it really well. And I think that will work most of the time for most people. I completely agree with you. I, I hope. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a manager's dream, I think, to have a team full of people that are completely focused on, on that. Uh, it's almost counterintuitive in, in that by focusing less on yourself, you have a better chance of demonstrating the value that means that you will get further. But I'm definitely going to read up on it. I think, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not a successful founder. We made Spectrum in 2017. It was three of us. And we ultimately sold the business two years later and it was still three of us. But I do think founding something, creating something from scratch and having to grow it and be responsible for it and accountable for every decision is the fastest track to internalizing this the solution to this principal agent problem. When you've been in a position where every problem that must be solved can only be solved by one of three people and you're one of those three, you stop giving a shit about titles, areas of responsibility, like whatever. Like the problem exists and if one of us doesn't do it, nobody will. This is why, you know, people say they go, oh, that person just went to a large organization to to check out, right? Like rest and vest. And that's because at large organizations, you can defer accountability. If you screw something up, either someone else will jump in and save the day. Or the organization is just so large and resilient that like a screw up isn't gonna be a big deal. But when you're one person, two person, two people, three people, like every mistake, every decision matters. And I think this, this to me is 
the spirit of what people are talking about when they say like you should start a side project, like ship a side project. That's a really great thing to have on your resume. I think they're trying to get at this. Like, are you able to take responsibility for the whole thing? I don't know, swap that with accountability, perhaps. Like every decision falls on your head. Like there's nobody else mm. to take the blame, <laughs> you know? Yeah, ownership. As someone with a team of two, four uh, from Monday, but we're hiring our first employees now and accountability, ownership, whatever you want to call it, is just kind of worth double and any anything else that people can show you, you know? Uh, also very yeah. difficult to test yeah. for in some ways, but yeah, we'll see how we get on with that. I'd love to find out a little bit more about Spectrum. If you're able to share, you know, your founder journey and, and how did you find that and what were the, the kind of challenges that you went through? It was a, it was a lovely product to, to use. So yeah, I'd, if you're up for it, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So for people who don't know, Spectrum was started by myself, Bryn Jackson, Max Stoiber, and we were trying to solve the problem that large communities have when, when they go online and they're having conversations at scale in public. So what happens today, or at least when we started the company in 2017, if you wanted to have a large public community, you would turn to some sort of product like Slack, you would have a Facebook group, you might spin up a forum, and all of these platforms have some really serious trade-offs for how that community is going to operate and how it's gonna grow. So for example, if you decide to build your community on Slack, you get this really awesome sort of real-time presence engine that lets people talk in real time. You get little green dots to know when people are online. You know, it, it's fun, right? Like you're in a room with warm bodies and that is a much better feeling community than a void where you can't tell if anyone's ever <laughs> listening to what you have to say. But if you do that, your community is not discoverable. Like all of the content that goes there is locked behind Slack's gate. It's not gonna come up on Google. You just lose this spirit of like open information, which for developers and open source communities is really important. And so that's why we made Spectrum. And so Spectrum was, I don't know, we tried to thread this needle on like, how do we make something that feels like there's warm bodies? It's like kind of real time, but also it's asynchronous enough that uh, a large community with thousands of members, people could feel comfortable participating in older threads. Threads would appear on Google search to provide value for people who are interested in something mm -hmm. a year from now, right? So that's why we made Spectrum. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So we, we worked on it. We ended up with like thousands, tens of thousands, I think now maybe hundreds of thousands of users, lots of communities, some of which became very big and I think did, did okay. But ultimately the, the company was acquired by GitHub and we had a hard time growing it. And so anyways, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I think where we really messed up was we built way too much, way too fast. And not necessarily too much software, but too much surface mm. area. Like we could have built a ton around making a really awesome conversation experience but instead we just built a ton of like horizontal surface area on the product, which made it really hard mm. to maintain. It made it really hard to have any one of those individual surfaces be good. So a clear example is we had, I don't know, two or three communities ask us for some sort of community analytics 
dashboard interface. They wanted to know if their community is growing, <laughs> which is a very reasonable thing to want. And so we listened to them, and so we built an analytics dashboard, right? Then those same communities come along a few weeks later, and they're like, well, now we want a little bit more like branding control. It doesn't feel good that people land on our community and it's sort of branded as Spectrum and they're confused about this, that, and the other. Okay, that's a very reasonable request. Of course, we should do that. So then we build this like branded login experience and just repeat that every couple of weeks mm -hmm. for like a year. And all of a sudden we have all these features that are driven by customer requests, but don't actually move towards solving like our original mm -hmm. vision of like, we never solved this like mixture of asynchronous and synchronous real-time chat threaded model like how should this work there was this buggy the site was a little bit slow like we never got the core experience to feel really really good so we built too much surface area too quickly the second thing is we we really struggled to find capital that was aligned with our vision or even to maybe more precisely like articulate what our vision was so for example we would go out and we would try to raise money we needed to raise like a a seed round or something. And we would talk to investors who asked us point blank, like, how are you going to make a billion dollars? And we're like, do we have to make a billion dollars? Like, what if we just want this to be like a pretty big community thing? Do we have to be Facebook? Do we have to be Twitter? And every investor we were talking to is like, yeah, like we want to invest if you think you're going to be Facebook. I'm like, well, we don't think we're <laughs> going to be Facebook. So do we lie or like, are we just on the wrong path? And Again, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think there's better people that we could have pitched to. I think there are VCs and and places, sources of capital these days that are a little more friendly to this vision of it doesn't have to be a unicorn. It can be a successful business and that is still mm. worth investing in. But at the time, I think we had a hard time finding those people and pitching to those people. So anyways, I just gave you the whole story. Start to retro on why I think things didn't ultimately work out. I think the most frustrating thing for me is that it ended up in like a pretty good state. Like the product looks pretty good. It works okay. But each individual thing never really felt great. And, uh, <laughs> Oh dude, like uh, yeah, what, it's hard to talk about. There's probably a whole other conversation, but a lot of that resonates and, um, saying no to things and, and guarding your product roadmap is where we're learning about that. There's for sure things that we've built that have taken us, you know, months and we just in retrospect just shouldn't have even thought about that, you know, but yeah, there you go. But this is the thing, like this is why people say, go start a startup and figure out how hard mm. this really is. And I don't think when people say startups are hard, uh, maybe some people are talking about like, yeah, you have to work a lot of hours or it's really stressful, that kind of thing. But I think actually the core of what's hard about startups is this. It's like, you think you know you're going through the process correctly. You're talking to customers. You're looking at data. Like you're following your gut. You have all these instincts, but it takes you down this path very quickly of building mm. the wrong thing. And recovering from that is very hard. Knowing that you built the right thing or the wrong thing is very hard to know in the moment. Uh, for me, it wasn't unclear until, you know, a year later, like this stuff, these are the hard problems. Or am I building the mm. right thing? Because we thought we were doing everything the right way, right? Like we talked to customers, we were doing customer development, we were onboarding like new communities, we were working directly with companies, like we were doing yeah. all of the, the, the steps right, but we were doing the steps right for the wrong yeah. thing, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to know that in the moment. Listen to your customers. There is a lot in that that 
there's a lot of nuance that those four words don't cover. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, listen, we've been chatting for nearly an hour now. I think we should wrap up. I'd love to just hear finally what's next beyond staff design. Anything else that you're pondering? Questions that you want to throw out into the into the ether, or things that you're building? Maybe another startup. No, not another startup. So I have two two blog posts that I've been, that have been in draft mode for a long time. The first one is what we started talking about, which was like personal brands, building an audience, how to do it, how to think about whether you should do it, that kind of stuff. I want to try like I want my angle on that to be pretty candid that people pretty much all the time overestimate how useful it actually is. Mm-hmm. Like and you know, it's kind of this joke, I guess, that People who are really good at Twitter tend to not be really good at their jobs. There's like an inverse correlation (laughs) here, right? And like you see the really quiet people on Twitter and they're just phenomenal designers. It's like, okay, there's something to that. So I want to write about that. The second thing that I want to write about is in my head, it's proof of curiosity in the same vein as proof of work in like the crypto space, right? Like there's this proof of work, like work's actually happened. It's been added to the chain, all this kind of stuff. I'm interested in this idea of proof of curiosity. I guess it's from like the hiring point of view. Like how do you hire and evaluate designers? Because it's really hard to read a case study or look at a bunch of photos and like actually know what that person did. Mm. And so I think you have to look at all these other signals and some other signals for me are, are really like, is this person curious about the world, about software, about design, about solving problems? And the, this is my, my least less developed blog post. But I think there's something here around, like, is the person writing? Are they talking about things? Are they interviewing people? Are they creating their own personal website from scratch instead of using some template? Like, I'll come up with a list of things in my head that when I see, I'm like, okay, that's not a reason to hire you. Like, okay, you built your own website. It's not a reason to hire mm-hmm. you. But the fact that you built your website says something, mm-hmm. right? That you started from scratch I know how hard it is to build a website in 2021. There's a million tools you could choose from. You probably had to do some research on all these tools. At some point you picked a framework. That's interesting. Why'd you pick that framework? Like there's so much that goes into that one thing. Like you made your own website. And I feel like there's a few other things like that, that I'll discover or develop a little bit better in this post of things that prove this person is a curious person. Mm And regardless of whatever their visual skills are at this moment in time, they're directionally pointed towards success, right? They're curious enough that it doesn't really matter if they're good now, they're going to be great. Mm. And that's when you want to like have that person join, right? Uh, come join and I'll help shape, shape that curiosity into something really great. So those are two blog posts I'm thinking about. And then... I don't know, side projects, business-wise, I have to decide if staff design will continue after eight interviews. So I've, I've done the eight interviews. They're ready to go. We're just releasing them week by week. And I've had a lot of time to sit back and think about whether I want to keep going. Mm. I think there's a little bit of hunger for it, but I don't know that it's enough. And what my manager told me that <laughs> I'm on the verge of taking design too seriously has resonated. So I think the next thing that I build has to be a product or mm. something a little more craft oriented where I can just be a designer solving problems and less about a designer trying to like understand the meta game of product design. 
So it'll probably be something like that, not a startup, but maybe something that I can sell mm. and use like revenue as a proof of success versus people like liking my tweets mm. because I don't think that that's a meaningful form of validation anymore. So something like that. It sounds it sounds great. I mean, the, the Curiosity blog post is uh, what maybe a slightly more HRE person might call a growth mindset. But is uh, <laughs> the sooner you write that, the better. Frankly, I, I'd uh, love to read it. We're hiring a designer at the moment, so. <laughs> but yeah. it, it sounds it sounds great, and it's been lovely to chat. So thank you very much. This has been great. Thanks so much for for the questions and, and letting me rant. <laughs> All right, thanks, Brian.